Hey, it's episode number 11 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. This week on the program, my friend Dana Chisnell is here for a very timely conversation on how the design of ballots affects voter trust in elections. She just finished a two-year tour with the U.S. Digital Service and has more than a decade and a half of experience in civic design. So let's get right to it. I do feel like I owe you a bit of an apology. For what? <laughs> well, you, so you came up to London recently and were kind enough to invite me out for uh, the Sunday brunch, which was lovely. Uh, and I brought my two kids along who are four and seven, and we're all trying to have this grown-up conversation about the industry and whatnot while they're busy trying to put maple syrup in their hair. <laughs> and then, so we're trying to have this conversation. And at one point, my daughter, who is the four-year-old, reaches over and takes your pancake and just starts eating it. It was so great. I wasn't eating it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I was mortified. I don't know. As a parent, you want to have some sort of decorum, <laughs> you know, like manners, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we had a marvelous time that day, and your kids are adorable. It was, it was absolutely great. Well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it was good. We went to the science museum. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, with or without kids. That's true. That's true. They've got really good stuff. So, um, yeah, it was fun. Uh, you do a fair amount of traveling, don't you? I do a fair amount of, yes, I do a fair amount of traveling. Over the last couple of years has mostly been to Washington, D.C., though um, there have been lots of other kind of fun expeditions, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we uh, both sort of do the comfort circuit, too, which is mm -hmm. always fun because I get to see all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Washington, D.C., uh, you... Uh, here, let me just jump right into the details. Tell me all about your job interview. <laughs> because because you told me about this before, right? Your boss is the president of the United States. My boss's boss. Ah, we'll, we'll gloss <laughs> over that part. I mean, but come yeah. on, you work for the president. I, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States, yes. Oh, I love that. That sounds really cool. <laughs> It is. It is a thing that keeps you going in the in the job when it gets wickedly frustrating and, and very hard. Um, that and um, making things better for the American public is hugely motivating. Oh yeah. Well, I would imagine. But you did interview with him, right? Not exactly interview. So well, you were you were in a meeting with him. Yeah, so how this happened was, there I was, minding my own business, and uh, I was working on a project in, in Madison, Wisconsin, actually, and my friend Erie Meyer called me up, and she, at the time, was working for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She had gone there from the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and she calls me up and she says, we're, we're doing a thing at the White House in a few weeks, and I really want you to come. I can't tell you very much about who will be there or what we're going to do, because it's all kind of off the record right now, but it's, I think it's really important that you show up. Will you come? And I was like, oh, I have other things to do, Erie, and she's like, no, really, this is going to be at the White House, and... It's really important. I really want you to be there. Okay, so I sign up, and um, I get an email with a personalized agenda from the then CTO, Todd Park, uh, complete with the White House seal in it and everything. And I show it to Jared, and he says, you're being recruited. I'm like, yeah, no, 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 that's not – no. The, this is a roundtable to talk about service delivery on the Internet. Like, 
I don't know anything about that, but Erie invited me, so I'm going. So I get there, and um, indeed, we have excellent conversations among the 12 or so of us technologists with the CTO and the CIO and deputy people from the Office of Management and Budget and person who has led innovation for the White House for the last five, six years. So you've got some uh, heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah. And, and are you literally in the West Wing? <laughs> we started out in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is a beautiful the street, building. Right? Yep, across Executive Avenue from, from the West Wing. And then about two-thirds of the way through the day, they trot us over to the West Wing, to the Roosevelt Room. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah, so if you look at the floor plan, which I had done before I'd gone, um, you can see that the Roosevelt Room is three, four feet away from the Oval Office. See, I know that because that's where Josh and Toby always ate pizza. Exactly. <laughs> 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 That's how most people know it. Yeah, uh, right, right. <laughs> and it's called the Roosevelt Room because uh, there's a, a Roosevelt Nobel Prize there, and there are paintings, and there's a bust of Eleanor, and it's very, it's it's a lovely room. And so um, Todd again, uh, Todd Park is holding forth about the history of the room and basically kind of filling time, and we're all kind of wondering what we're doing there. And in walks the president. And uh, we, of course, all stand up. He goes around and shakes everyone's hands, and he sits down uh, in his special chair, which is two inches higher from everybody else's, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, proceeds to talk about – he was supposed to stay for 10 minutes and stayed for 45 minutes – talked about how a failure like healthcare.gov should never, ever, ever happen again in uh, U.S history or future, and how important it is going to be to deliver services to the American public over the internet, uh, and that right now the federal government does that very poorly. Uh, and so he was about to form the United States Digital Service. So this meeting was August 1st, and he announced it publicly August 11th, 2014. And so all of this was embargoed for 10 days, and we were all kind of Scoogey about it. Anyway, he closed. So I guess you're not Instagramming this meeting uh, in no, real time. No. <laughs> in fact, uh, before we went into the room, we all had to surrender all of our devices. Surrender. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. quite a word. Yeah. They went into this beautiful Federalist cabinet that had little cubbies in it and a brass lock on it. And um, yeah, so you put them in there and uh, somebody locks it behind you and you go into the meeting and then when you come out, somebody unlocks it. And anyway, so the president holds forth uh, very passionately and he is he is as techy as a president could possibly be. Like he was not just talking about this stuff off of talking points. In fact, somebody came in the other door with a leather folder with a couple of sheets of paper with talking points. And he just chucked them. Uh, he talked directly from his heart uh, for that entire time and closed by saying, and in case you all haven't figured this out, you are here because I want you to come work for me. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, um, he said, then... I got to go because I have to go do a 90-minute press conference about Israel and Palestine. And <laughs> uh, But I love you guys. Join me. <laughs> that strikes me as not so much a job offer so much as a proclamation. Like, this is what you're going to be doing now. 
Well, like, you know, you, when you, you don't really have a choice. When you, you no, exactly. When you are the leader of the free world, you you get to talk like that. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> and right. And so uh, it's a very compelling recruiting uh, pitch. Yeah, I would imagine. And it also must have been just really great timing considering the arc of your career because you spent sort of 15 years doing what you would call, I guess, civic design. Is that right? Yes. It feels like uh, a lot of my career was leading up to this point and I didn't even know it. But then careers are often like that. Uh, For the last 15, 16 years, I have been working in design in election administration, which is a strange concept to people who think of voting and elections just from the campaign side. There's a whole heap of stuff that happens on the government side to actually put on an election. Uh, The logistics are amazing. The deadlines are incredible. And the people who do this work are superb selfless human beings who are really good at their jobs, but they're not designers. But in fact, they make tons of designed artifacts, including ballots, but lots of forms and websites and things like that. And so uh, over the years, I have been working with probably thousands by now, uh, election officials, to uh, ensure the voter intent through design. So yeah, I guess that sort of manifests itself as like usability testing or any of the other techniques we would use just doing, you know, interactive product design. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my, my little origin story really starts with the butterfly ballot from the presidential election in 2000. Oh, Uh, the, the hanging chads. Hanging chads, yeah. So what happened there is that uh, this was a very common voting system at the time. Uh, You went into the voting booth. uh, When you got to the polling place, you'd get a a rectangular card that was printed with numbers, and around each of the numbers is a little perforated box, and that's a chad. And that card fits behind a thing that looks like a book. It has left and right pages, and as you flip through, the space between the left and right pages – uh, has holes in it, and those holes line up with the numbers on the card. So to vote on that system, you push a pin through the hole that is next to the choice of candidate that you want to vote for, uh, except in Florida, and it turns out a whole bunch of other counties in Florida and Georgia at the time, they made a decision to increase the type size so that instead of all of the candidates lining up on the left – which is the normal way to design this ballot, they spanned the two-page spread uh, and created this interlaced effect, making kind of a butterfly. And a whole thousands of people left the voting booth in November 2000 wondering if they had actually voted for the person they intended to vote for. So, wait, how do we, how do we know that? Were there interviews with people or um, yeah. exit polls or something? Yeah, so Florida especially was highly contended in uh, the presidential election, and all of the things ended up happening there. In case you weren't alive or aware uh, in 2000, what happened is that the big broadcast news organizations – love to start calling the winners, especially in presidential contests, as soon as there's enough return showing up uh, to do a statistical prediction. And so CBS and NBC and ABC went around and back and forth about who 
actually was the winner in Florida. This ultimately led to a series of recounts. So all of those ballots needed to be recounted in uh, Palm Beach County. And eventually this led to uh, the Supreme Court stopping the recounts and naming George Bush the 43rd president of the United States. But in the meantime, you bring up the hanging chads. And the thing that's important about this is this, this crazy little rectangular card with the chads uh, perforated in it. There's this problem mechanically with the apparatus. And that is if you don't push the chad all the way out of the card, the the tallying machine, the computer, tallies those cards differently than if they are pushed all the way out of the cards. So there's this notion of pregnant chads and hanging chads. And the more those cards are handled, that meant that the vote count actually changed because Uh, more chads would be released. Sure. And so that complicated things quite a bit. That ultimately led all of that stuff Uh, The butterfly ballot uh, ultimately led to uh, a bunch of congresspeople, uh, including uh, Rush Holt, uh, deciding that we really needed to modernize elections in the United States. So let's find a bunch of money and give it to the states to buy new voting systems. So they wrote the Help America Vote Act, which uh, President Bush signed in 2002, which set aside $3.9 billion dollars for new voting systems uh, for all of the states. And uh, that was pretty much the end of the punch card era. And that led to a new era of voting systems that uh, is either electronic touchscreen voting systems or paper ballots where you fill in a bubble or a box or join two ends of an arrow uh, and put them through an optical scanner. Yeah, the the fill-in-the-blank style is all I've ever used. I've never had a touchscreen, I guess. Maybe San Francisco is a little behind the times in that regard? Well, it's an interesting issue. You would think that computers would be the answer, but what we actually learned when jurisdictions started using touchscreen voting systems is that it's not impossible to hack them, and second, it's really hard to do a recount. And what election officials actually care about is their ability to do a recount if the margins are close. So virtually every state has laws on the books that say if the margin of victory is closer than a certain percentage, you have to take some action to double check that votes were counted the way that they were, that they should have been. And there's actually no good way to do that if you have uh, an electronic touchscreen voting system that doesn't have some kind of a paper trail. And so is that how the systems works? You, you touch the electronic screen to signify intent and it prints out a receipt that you give to an election worker and that counts as your vote? So you might think that you would design a voting system to work that way, but that's not actually what happens on those. For the electronic voting systems that do have uh, printed uh, tallies, those are actually on thermal rolls under plexiglass viewers and the idea is that as a voter, you're supposed to be watching that at the same time that you're actually voting. And before you press cast my ballot, you check. Oh, so that. it's in the booth with you under glass. Yeah. Ah, yeah. all right. And it's literally like that thermal paper of a receipt sort of thing. Yeah, but you don't get one. Okay, all right, all right. Okay. Now, the future of voting is looking like this. And Los Angeles County has been working on a system for about five years now. 
that they're building from the ground up. This is a radical thing, but it's super exciting. Uh, but how uh, generally how this will work is um, you can either go into a vote center, should California change its laws so that there will be vote centers rather than um, specific polling places that you have to go to, and you would walk up to uh, a large, shiny touchscreen device where you would touch the candidates and vote on all of the measures and propositions, and it would then print out a human-readable equivalent to a receipt that you could then view to double-check that you had voted the way you intended, and then that paper ballot gets tallied in a separate system, and there's a record in the voting system itself. Now, the beauty of this particular system is that sometime in the future, you would be able to go log on to an app from the, the county, mark your ballot on your own device, get a QR code, and take that to the, to the vote center. And just and, drop it off. Um, yep. Well, this is great. This is, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about because it occurs to me, uh, kind of big picture, that elections are sort of in the same category as like money in that they are this, this sort of collective fish, fiction that we all agree to, right? I mean, if you think about it, it's not been all that long in the course of human history that, that society has agreed on how we would transition power in our government and who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in that context, the only way it works is for everyone to trust the system. Just like the only way money works is if everyone agrees to its value. And I think the, the trust in the system has a lot to do with the design of the system. And back what you were talking about, that trust was really rocked back in Florida in 2000. There were the, all these questions about the Electoral College and how could somebody win the popular vote and lose the election. And, and we had to go to the Supreme Court to decide. Yeah, nothing like that had ever happened in American history. Right, right. And, and the reason I wanted to talk about this now in particular is because here we are a couple of weeks before the election in the U.S., and one of the candidates is suggesting that the whole thing is rigged. Yep. He's shaking that confidence. And I wonder if in the design practice you've, you've run over the past decade and a half, if you have a sense of how election officials think about trust and the systems they design and maintain. So uh, a few years ago, Whitney Quisenberry and I, uh, she's my co-director at the Center for Civic Design, uh, did a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation, thank you, NSF, to look at security in the polling place uh, because I had been looking at usable security sort of in the private sector, mostly around authentication and and, uh, account management and things like that. But this opportunity came up because there's a big crossover in terms of concerns about security. Uh, And so NSF said, we have a little bit of money, you could go look at this. And uh, it was around the midterm elections. So we had the opportunity to go out into about 20 polling places over a couple of years. Uh, I think we we saw 100 elections altogether or something like that. Uh, and our job was just to observe what happens in the polling place from the time poll workers show up in the morning, which is around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to set up all the equipment. And the polls close in most places at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., uh, to the time that uh, the lights are turned out in the high school gym and everybody is left. Right. Uh, We actually followed them all the way to the collection points to see how that actually happened too. And our 
hypothesis was that whatever security problems were happening in the polling place were likely to be human-generated and probably accidental, Uh, that there are a lot of moving parts to making Election Day happen. And honestly, some of them are kind of kludgy if you start looking at seals on voting systems and things like that. They're like cable ties or (laughs) (laughs) or tape. Uh, So it's, it's very easy to get those things wrong. Uh, and so that was our that was our going theory, and we also wanted to learn about how it was that poll workers thought about security. So over hundreds of hours of observation and lots of different locations, uh, both rural and urban, big elections, small elections, what we came out with was a clear understanding that election officials and poll workers, especially feel a lot of responsibility, accountability, and ownership for securing the election. Like, the whole thing is about security. It's not an add-on like we talk about in lots of technology. Uh, and so that that was kind of a surprising, but now it seems like obvious, finding. And uh, out of that... Uh, we were able to work with a bunch of excellent jurisdictions who shared their best practices with all of the other jurisdictions that we could possibly reach. And um, But one of the most interesting parts of that study to me was meeting the individual poll workers who are basically temporary election workers who volunteer. Volunteer is the wrong word because they get some small stipend. It's between $50 and $175 for the day, which could be a 16-hour day, maybe longer. And they do this out of civic pride and civic engagement. Like, this is a thing that they do because they think elections are really important. And they take their jobs extremely seriously. One of my favorite (laughs) elections was uh, in Minnesota. We went to a suburban church to an observe to observe an election there, and this team of poll workers had all worked together before. They weren't friends outside of poll working, but when they all arrived, they were all really happy to see one another, and you know they were catching up as friends, and they'd bought you know they'd brought hot dish. There was potluck for, <laughs> 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 but they took their jobs really seriously. Uh, when it came time to sit down and uh, do the business of the election, everybody was on. They were on target, they were on the job, and they were um, very much supportive of one another, but also double-checking everybody's work. And um, it was fantastic to see that. It's hard for me to imagine (laughs) how, if you multiply that times... 5,000 or more jurisdictions on a presidential election day that you could see any episodes of voter fraud or, or hacking. It would be really hard because, for one thing, those people knew who was supposed to be there and who was not supposed to be there. And they are very strict about things like if the rule is there are no phones in the polling place, they will walk up to you and say, put away your phone and turn it off. There's no compunction about that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But all of that is in contrast to what a chunk of the American public believes right now, right? I mean, 
Look, there was this editorial in the New York Times a few weeks ago talking about the success of the voter fraud myth and how when you poll Donald Trump supporters, something like two-thirds of them think that there is some corruption going on in the election. But even Hillary Clinton supporters, like 25%, believe the same thing. (laughs) And the editorial goes on to say that there's how there's literally no evidence over decades and decades of elections of anything nefarious going on. So it really comes back to this issue of trust in the institutions, doesn't it? Yes. Trust is a super important thing in elections. And when... Uh, when you have poor ballot design, when you have poor design in elections, that also degrades trust. doesn't matter what any of the candidates actually say. Um, if the experience of voting is bad, that is a thing that informs people's level of trust in the entire system and of the entire government. So uh, yeah, right. It's a, it's a big ripple effect. You know, it, it sort of reminds me of the decades of research we've done into e-commerce and how even the most superficial design of the presentation layer affects the trust that somebody will feel over putting their credit card into a form. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, over the last few years, the my team at the Center for Civic Design has been working uh, on a grant from the Irvine Foundation with the Future of California elections on uh, on voter information guides. And uh, one of the things that we learned about production value, basically, is what you're talking about in terms of trust and credibility, is that when you get a thing from the government in the mail, it should look like it comes from the government. So it's okay that it's on cheap newsprint. It's okay that the design maybe looks a little bit amateurish, but authoritative. It's okay that it's not high production and colorful because I don't actually, as a taxpayer, want you spending your money on that kind of thing. So uh, interesting. It's almost an inverse of how an e-commerce website would use design to build trust. It's like you want it to look bad to um, feel like the government yeah. in a way. Yeah, it was. we were surprised about that. But the other thing that you have to realize is the context for this. So this time of the year, leading up to a major election, people get boatloads of crap in their mailbox. And a lot of it is from campaigns. And all of the campaign mail is shiny and colorful and, you know, practically yelling you, at you about their candidate. And so distinguishing that from what comes from the local government about what's on the ballot and where to go vote and what voting is like uh, is actually really important. Yeah, well, that that stuff does have a very particular aesthetic, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> We're trying to bring that up a little bit. Yeah, well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> this week's episode of Presentable is brought to us by our friends at FreshBooks. You know, I talk to a lot of designers, and I can't tell you just how many times so many of them mention their side projects. This is work that they do when they come home from their job, you know, little projects. They do them for inspiration, to spur their creativity, and frankly, to generate a little bit of extra cash. And all of that is great, but it also means that you're going to have to spend some of your precious time collecting payment from people when all you want to be doing really is practicing your craft. FreshBooks are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid stress that comes from running their businesses. And that all starts with pain-free invoicing. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices totally simple. It takes just 30 seconds to create and send an invoice, and you can add your company logo for that extra professionalism for the way you want your invoices to look. FreshBooks will give your clients tons of ways to pay you. They allow you to receive payments by credit card and integrate with services like PayPal, and this can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. In fact, FreshBook customers get paid 
up to five times faster on average. And this part is really great that you can see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice. So no more excuses, no lost invoice, and you can set up an automatic late payment reminder as well. So they just keep getting the email saying, hey, my invoice, how about it? And that's just the invoicing. FreshBooks has a lot of other features to help you keep organized. You can easily keep track of your expenses, and if you're in the US, you can automatically import your bank transactions for easy reconciliation. They have great reports. You can easily see who owes you what. Tons of third-party integrations. They do time tracking. They have amazing customer support. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple. You don't really have to be a numbers person at all. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial to listeners of this show. No credit card required. To claim your 30 days of unrestricted use, go to freshbooks.com slash presentable. That's freshbooks.com slash presentable. And when you sign up, please enter presentable in the how you heard about us section so FreshBooks knows you came from this show. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring presentable and Relay FM. Okay, so tell me about the process of actually improving the ballots. So this is a long game. Uh, it starts with research that was commissioned by the Election Assistance Commission, which is also a body that was created by the Help America Vote Act. At the same time, all that money was set aside for new voting systems. And the EAC uh, commissioned a great project that AIGA did uh, it was called the Design for Democracy Project to uh, do a whole bunch of research around what would be the best practice for laying out a ballot and presenting that information. And they published that study in about 2006 or seven. Uh, it was a beautiful report, as you would expect from AIGA, about 300 pages of very detailed design specifications. There are two problems with this. One is election officials don't know what PICAs are, and they're not going to use a 300-page document to lay out their ballots. The other problem with this is that uh, none of the voting systems on the market at the time supported that ballot layout in any way. Like, the, the tools that are in the election management systems don't look at layout and grid <laughs> the same way that designers do. And just trying to even get close to that uh, was really hard. Now, all of the voting systems do support that. Well, it sounds like, though, a lot of these best practices were designed without a deep understanding of the constraints of the systems that they'd be working on. There was some there was some understanding of the constraints, uh, but there was also a desire on the part of the EAC to push voting system manufacturers to level up. Okay. Now, well, that makes sense. Uh, there are lots of constraints on in all of the sides <laughs> to this too, because procurement, until very recently, looking at voting systems was a very expensive purchase that would take some number of years to even get to. And the expectation was that your voting system would last for decades. I mean, mechanical lever machines were used for 50 years. Those punch card voting systems were actually a 1960s technology that lasted until around 2000. So, like, the expectation is that even though these new systems are computer-based at some level, even... Uh, even if you're using optically scanned paper ballots, uh, that they should last for 20, 30 years. But we know that that is 
not going to happen. And so right now, uh, all of those voting systems that were bought by money from Help America Vote Act are aging out. And you can't, in some cases, you can't even find parts for them anymore. But at that time, in the mid-2000s, remember, like, Apple hadn't even come out with iPhone yet. So we're looking at uh, voting systems that were built on 1990s Windows-based technology. Oh, my gosh. And had been certified for use in elections many years before because there's a long lead time to getting there. So there's all of that. Long lead times to engineering and manufacturing and long lead times for procurement and all that stuff. A bunch of that stuff has changed since then. Uh, but at the time, it was just really hard to do good ballot design in elections. And there was this um, feeling on the part of election officials who had been in the business for a long time. These are mostly county clerks who have other jobs to do in addition to running elections. This attitude that uh, the vendor knows how to do this better than I do. And uh, I am not in a position because I don't know enough technologically to make demands. That also has changed over the years. And so all of those factors fit together to slowly, gradually, incrementally uh, improve ballot design and improve outcomes for for voters. I can't even imagine the kind of patience I must take. (laughs) Uh, But I tend to work with startups these days and not, you know, the biggest organization in all of America. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a very different time scale. Um, also, uh, when you look at the number of moving parts in putting on election, election officials are understandably skittish about making major changes from election to election, and so to help them feel in control, our advice has been forever: make one small change, make sure that you're comfortable with that. Like it didn't screw up any of the outcomes of the election. Then in the next election, because there are a lot more elections than most people realize in the next election, change something else. So like for this election, just change everything from all uppercase to mixed case. Oh my God. For the next election. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For the next election, Keep that and use some shading to show the differences from one contest to the next. Okay? And then in the next election, make sure that uh, the instructions are clear and in plain language, which is also not a very easy thing to do because those things are codified in law. In fact, every state has laws that determine the design and layout of ballots. Typeface, type size, grid and layout, the wording of instructions, all of those things are law. And not much consistency between them, you know, from like state to state? Consistently bad. (laughs) (laughs) And mostly overspecified uh, and uh, not not helpful in in the new world. In fact, uh, New York State was the last state to buy new voting systems and to implement them. They they finally got new voting systems in 2010 and rolled them out. And they had bought these new voting systems moving directly from uh, mechanical lever machines to printed paper optical scanned ballots, but didn't change the election laws 
uh, at the same time. And so the instructions that went on the first ballots in the first elections in New York State uh, were the same as the ones for mechanical lever machines and, of course, made no sense to normal human beings. So Now, it occurs to me as you're explaining all this about the laws governing the system that the people who drafted these laws and voted on them benefited from the old system that got them elected in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked for me last time. Why would I want to change it at all? Very astute observation. Yes, it is It is difficult to get election reform done at the legislature level in the states uh, for that very reason. So things like straight party voting, where you just mark off uh, a bubble or a box for the major party, and that casts your vote for all of the candidates of that party, Parties love that, but it's very confusing to voters. We've tested it, and like most voters don't know what the heck they're doing. Right, right. So, you know, at least in my work, I've seen really two things that can help from a design perspective when you're trying to make big change in a large organization. The, the first is momentum, and we've sort of talked about how hard that is in the work that you do. And, and by that, I mean, you know, that, that constant, quick, iteration and, and learning from each one by measuring the results over time. But the other is honestly just introducing people to their customers, primarily by having them observe people failing when, when trying to use their products, you know, just doing general usability testing, recording the results, and showing that footage to uh, the decision makers. So is that effective in the work that you do? Yeah, it is super effective. In fact, that's one of the things that we teach the most, in addition to plain language, is is the basics of usability testing. Uh, Whitney and I were part of a a small cabal of people uh, in the early 2000s, in fact, uh, who were part of a group called the Usability Professionals Association at the time. It's now called the Usability, sorry, the User Experience Professionals Association, who got together at a conference room at Michigan State University and made a thing that we call the election, uh, the local election officials usability testing kit, which was a very bare bones little thing, three documents that you could download that had, you know, how to run a usability test how to recruit participants, how to report out the results uh, that we used over time to make sure that anybody could use that document. And uh, we've sent that around. Lots and lots and lots of jurisdictions have used it. And uh, so that, that's been huge. One of my favorite stories, there are lots of stories about election officials doing usability testing now, but one of my favorite stories uh, was Florida is kind of the poster child, but these kinds of problems happen all over the place. Um, there was a, uh, a midterm election in Florida in Sarasota County, uh, in, uh, 2006 that they did on, uh, electronic touchscreen systems. Very close election. Uh, winner ultimately won by, uh, around 350 votes. Um, wow. Yeah. Investigation showed no mechanical or technological or security problems with the voting systems. But this got everybody freaked out enough about recounts that it, for the 2008 election, they changed voting systems to a paper-based system. Same election official running elections. She's like, I don't want to deal with that stuff again. Can you help us make sure that our printed ballots are actually going to work for voters? And so uh, a group of researchers went down to Sarasota and to Duval counties and ran a study 
and uh, with ballots that looked like the ones that were going to be used in November, recruited a bunch of participants, uh, asked them to vote the way they normally would, uh, and then did a little debrief with, uh, with each of the voters. Now, all of these voters were very avid, frequent voters. Uh, in fact, all of them had voted in the August primary uh, just a month or two before. And most of them had to be nudged to turn the ballot over and vote the second side. Ah. This is in spite of the fact that in this ballot design, there's a big banner in all uppercase at the bottom of the ballot on both sides that says, vote both sides. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so the suggested remedy was... Um, instead of that banner, which our participants told us just looked like, like they didn't even notice it. It was a f- part of the frame of the outside of the ballot to put an instruction at the bottom of the right-hand column, because these are laid out in three-column grids, to put an instruction at the bottom of the right-hand column on both sides that says, turn the ballot over. And so um, Sarasota and Duval counties did that, uh, but 15 other counties that also had um, a constitutional amendment on the second side, had a much higher, what we call, undervote rate, <laughs> uh, like a 4.5% higher undervote rate on the constitutional ballot, or the constitutional amendment that was on the second side. Um, this suggests that about 28,000 votes were saved in uh, Sarasota and Duval counties just from making this little tweak. And I got to tell you, the election director in Sarasota County was very pleased with that outcome. Yeah, I guess you get great analytics. Well, I guess elections are, by their very definitions, just analytics, really. Yeah, we get all these great natural experiments playing out in every single election. So there's the fertile ground for learning. So is it naive or just idealistic to think that there must be just one true ballot <laughs> design that we can use? I mean, you must you must have this fantasy, right, that we could just um, fix it? Uh, there's a sort of de facto standard emerging. Um, now that voting systems, all the voting systems out there in the world do support uh, the best practice design, there's no excuse for... Uh, not making it do that, um, at least logistically. There's quite a lot of skill involved in doing that. But there are lots of resources and templates and lots of help for doing that. So there's, there is that. That is sort of emerging. As you, look at, um, as you look at printed ballots, that is certainly happening. Uh, at the, after the 2012 election, I collected images of printed ballots uh, from – Every state, I didn't collect all of the images of all of the ballots because that would have been millions of them, actually. Uh, but I have at least one ballot from every state from the 2012 presidential election. I've posted it on my, in my Flickr account. There's an album there of ballots. Oh, cool. I'll, uh, I'll put a link to that in the notes for this show. That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, you start to see that there are patterns in what the anatomy of a ballot looks like and that when you compare like 2008 to 2012, and I'm excited to see what happens in 2016, uh, that there's more good design practice. There's more mixed case. It's easier to navigate the ballot uh, because you can tell the uh, one contest from the next. The instructions are clearer and they probably are even illustrated. So things like that are, are definitely starting to happen. 
There will continue to be computers and touchscreens used in elections. And if LA's experiment plays out the way a lot of us are hoping it will, that will be the future of of voting. Um, And their, uh, their software, their ballot user interface is loosely based on principles that came from research that my team did on a thing called the, we call it the Anywhere Ballot. Um, That started with uh, a workshop where we were trying to make voting more accessible to people with disabilities. So if you go into a polling place right now for this coming election, there will be at least two voting systems, one for able people and one for people with disabilities. And I hate this. This drives me nuts, partly because there are features on the voting system for people with disabilities that people who don't identify as being disabled could make use of, like magnifying. But there's a future in which we have universal design and all voters are using the same voting system. And uh, the idea that we came up with uh, in this workshop was that, well, if anybody if everyone were going to be able to vote in the same uh, on the same ballot user interface, um, what would you have to do to do that? And we came up with this idea that if you served the digital ballot interface through a standards compliant browser, uh, that people could vote on their own devices anywhere, anytime. Uh, from the time the ballot was issued to the end of election day. And so we also looked at, there's a ton that design knows about how to design for people with disabilities like uh, blindness or low vision, dexterity and mobility problems. Um, But we haven't done until really recently much work on design for people who have invisible disabilities like dyslexia or low literacy, uh, cognitive disabilities uh, that can range from uh, early learning disabilities and autism to uh, PTSD and traumatic brain trauma. And so how do you design for that? So we centered the Anywhere Ballot Design research around uh, designing for people with low literacy and mild cognitive issues. And oh my God, that was incredibly eye-opening for me. From that, I learned so much from that. Oh, I would imagine. That I, I don't want to do usability testing on anything that doesn't involve people with low literacy. Um, about 48% of American adults uh, read at or below the sixth grade level. 48%? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you add in to that... All of us who maybe are sleep deprived for any number of reasons or under some level of stress because of life events or whatever, your reading cognition naturally goes down because your brain can't take all of that stuff in. So, good point. Good yeah. point. Uh, so, uh, the Anywhere Ballot is designed around that. And this meant that we had to do things like create unconventional interaction uh, that. You are never going to find on an iOS device or an Android device, but totally worked for people who had never used a touchscreen before. And um, wow, yeah, it was it was a fantastic project. You can see it. You can try it out for yourself on your own device at anywhereballot.com. And there's a pattern library that we made. Uh, so if you go to anywhereballot.com/library, you can uh, 
see an online version or download a PDF of the pattern library. Nice. I'm and looking so at it right now. That's become the basis of a bunch of uh, touchscreen interfaces, not just Los Angeles's, but commercial vendors have started to use parts of that too. Nice. That's that's really cool. You, uh, I think you've got quite a bit of work ahead of you in the next uh, couple years. <laughs> there's You'll be very busy. There's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, though to to that end, you've spent the last couple of years working for the digital service, working for the president. Um, on things like how veterans sign up for benefits and the usability around that kind of stuff. Isn't that right? Yeah. So the president formed uh, the United States Digital Service in direct response to healthcare.gov's launch in 2013. Uh, Press the button to say, go, everybody sign up for health insurance. And the servers immediately fell over from the number of from the amount of traffic. A bunch of people came from the private sector to rescue healthcare.gov, and that year about 8 million people signed up for health insurance through the Affordable Care Act exchanges. So that was an amazing recovery, and the digital service is a way of formalizing that sort of rescue effort. Because it turns out there are a lot of projects in the federal government that look a whole lot like that. Um, the Yeah. <laughs> and this was sort of very specifically and kind of aggressively saying, look, we need Google engineers here, right? So right. take a sabbatical <laughs> or some time off or whatever and get over here and give us a hand. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, I've heard uh, stories of changes happening. Like if you want to bid on this government contract, you have to be able to turn a prototype around in 24 hours. Ready, go. Yeah, so we've really shifted that a lot. Um, so first thing is working on these crazy, big, risky projects that look like healthcare.gov in places like uh, the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs, uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Social Security Administration, IRS, uh, we have a new team at the Department of State. Um, there are teams at uh, the Department of Defense, Small Business Administration. I'm going to leave some out, and I don't mean to. Uh, now there's a team at Health and Human Services at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid that own healthcare.gov, uh, and a bunch of other lots of – oh, Department of Justice – working on big, important systems that touch a lot of people's lives. Now, the thing is, you bring up procurement. The way procurement gets done in the federal government, all the way IT gets done in the federal government is not intuitively obvious to people who come from the private sector. <laughs> you're, um, I think you're being very gracious. <laughs> so mostly uh, f- career federal employees are project and program managers, and many of them are not technical. Um, but to carry out their charters, which is basically legislation that the Congress passes and executive orders that a president puts into place, uh, they need technology to do that. And the way the technology gets implemented in the federal government up until now is the same way that you procure a battleship. (laughs) Yeah, right. So somebody spends a couple of years, maybe up to five years, uh, gathering requirements, and then there's a two-year... 
uh, request for proposal to contract period. And then the work starts. And so by the time you get to that point, the technology that's talked about in the, in the requirements is five, seven, ten years old. Right, right, right. Yeah. So um, we have amazing procurement people at uh, the digital service who took a look at what the regulations were and said, hey, you know what? We don't have to do it that way anymore. We can actually use agile processes and we can buy agile teams instead of buying monumental software projects that ultimately are very expensive and don't deliver on the promise. And so uh, there have been a few awesome experiments now. 18F, which is a full-service web design and development agency inside the General Services Administration for hire by the government, uh, ran what's called a blanket, a blanket purchase agreement um, set of challenges uh, a year or so ago, uh, where and basically every uh, attempt uh, at changing procurement has looked something like this. There's a very small paper proposal. So instead of hundreds of pages of proposals of you know past experience and company capabilities and that kind of blah blah shorter versions of that. And then the, the centerpiece of the proposal process is meeting a challenge. And that is uh, a coding and design and delivery challenge. And so uh, this is a thing that kind of freaks out the big prime contracting companies. But in seeing the difference in the kinds of teams that come through from one kind of procurement to the new kind of procurement, it's amazing. The American people are definitely going to benefit <laughs> from this this new way of doing it. Yeah, well, it gets back to what we were talking about with momentum, right? And and that you can deliver something quickly with a, a sort of contemporary platform yeah. that you can learn from and measure and get better at. Yeah, the notion of uh, minimum viable product in the government is very different from the startup world, though. We've had to kind of adjusted a bit. I would like to have a conversation with Eric Reese about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. Uh, because the notion of risk is very different. Uh, and and competition is different. Uh, like, ain't anybody competing with the IRS, really, or the VA, uh, or Citizenship and Immigration Service. Uh, so what an experiment is, or what a prototype is, or what a soft launch is. It's a slightly different definition, but we have found it a really effective way of working and proving out that working in a more modern way can actually work. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like one of the, I don't know, the fundamental partisan differences in the United States is this notion of how much government we should have, right? So people on the, want, on the right want far less government. People on the left tend to be... Uh, I don't know, more optimistic, maybe, in the ability for government to be effective. And I just think based on the, the people I know in the digital service, especially since it's a subject area that I know so much about, it just it just fills me with the sort of optimism. And I guess, I don't know, I guess I just really appreciate your service. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, of course. Um, but I, I also think it's an opportunity for people who have built careers in technology to afford them a sort of way of giving back. Yeah. And I think encouraging people to do that is something uh, we should do more of. Yeah, it's it's been it's been amazing. It's been uh fun and energizing and often wickedly frustrating. 
Um, but <laughs> uh, I think that we've made I think we've made a lot of progress. And uh, right now, uh, so the digital service when I joined in October 2014 was about 15 people. I think I might have been number 10 or 11. Uh, and uh, now we are close to 200 people. Wow. Uh, in the White House and embedded in agencies. And uh, most of those people, some of them have come from the federal government, uh, either transferred or what we call detailed from other agencies. But most of those people have come from the private sector because they believe in the mission of serving the American people and using their technical expertise to do that. And uh, being around people every day, all day long, who feel that mission and that drive uh, has been incredibly rewarding. And um, it it makes the most frustrating things a lot less frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I bet. I bet. Um, so where can people find more of your work? So uh, you can learn about the projects that we've worked on and, and see some showcases of uh, design that election officials have done after working with us at civicdesign.org. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of juicy stuff there, including uh, links to other resources like a toolkit that we worked on uh, under a, a night grant with uh, Center for Technology and Civic Life and a couple of other groups called uh, election tools. Anyway, so there's that. Uh, if you are interested in the United States Digital Service, and I encourage every human being who is listening to this to go do civil service, to go do public service for a while, seeing what it's like inside is amazing uh, and good. You can go to usds.gov and uh, see the full story and... Um, Press the Join Us button and fill in an application. Ah, you're recruiting. Very nicely done. <laughs> and you're, uh, you're on Twitter at Dana Chiz. Yep. D-A-N-A-C-H-I-S. Yep. Dana, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, too. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jeff. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fein. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentable FM. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.